This is Theology Refresh, Desiring God's podcast for pastors and Christian leaders, and we are honored to have with us today Dr. Don Carson to talk about the doctrine of the Incarnation. Dr. Carson, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure to be with you again. Uh, You and I were talking just a few minutes ago about how often the word incarnation comes up these days among pastors and other Christian leaders. When we talk about the doctrine of the incarnation, what do we have in mind? Where would you send us and explain that doctrine for Christian leaders? The word incarnation comes from the Latin carne, that is flesh or even meat. So incarnation is the infleshing of God. And the New Testament passage that encapsulates it most immediately, most comprehensively, is certainly John 1, especially verse 14. In verse 1, we're told that the Word was in the beginning with God, God's own fellow, and the Word was God, God's own self. And then we're told in verse 14 that this Word became flesh. And flesh in the context clearly means became a human being. He became what he was not. He became a human being. It's not that he indwelt a human being or put on some kind of humanness as if humanness were somehow what he was dressed in or faked his humanity or appeared as a human. He actually became a human being. So, by the doctrine of the Incarnation, we're talking about how the eternal Son of God, the Word himself, appeared, not just in superficial form, in appearance, as it were, mm-hmm. a fake thing. He actually became a human being and thus was manifested to us as a mm-hmm. human being in real history, in real time and space, the eternal God, the agent of the Father in creation, one with the eternal God, actually becomes one with us, human beings made of flesh and blood. There's, when we talk about the incarnation, the person of Christ, usually pretty quickly among theologians and those aware of church history, we talk about Chalcedon, uh, the church council in 451. Are there some memorable formations from Chalcedon that you find helpful in explaining the incarnation? Well, the heritage that has come down to us that is probably most important is to remember that Christ is one person but two natures. That is to say, uh, Chalcedon insisted that um, the the two natures do not diminish each other. It's, it's It's not as if as God he became somehow less God, God minus something because he became a human being. And likewise, his human nature is not somehow a hyped-up special class of human being. He is genuinely human, with all of that means, and genuinely God, with all of that means, in two natures that maintain distinctness, even while at the same time we insist that they are so united that he is but one person. Now, you can keep pushing that language and pushing that language Mm -hmm. until you quickly fall into some mystery here and there. There's no doubt about that. But it's language like that that is needed in order to preserve all the different contributing voices of the New Testament to explain adequately in summary form what the Bible actually says about Jesus as the Mm God-man. Sometimes uh, I know pastors, Christian leaders get into trouble in trying to explain Philippians 2 in a particular way. A passage often quoted, Philippians 2, verse 5 to 11, 
he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And that's talking about the incarnation. Um, what do we mean and not mean by emptying himself? That is a really very good question because much has been written of it uh, over the years. And many have tried to take the expression, he emptied himself, uh, to be tied to a further question of what did he empty himself? He emptied himself of what? Did he empty himself of his deity, Mm. for example? If he emptied himself of his deity, then he was no longer God. So others say, no, he didn't empty himself of his deity, but he emptied himself of some of his attributes as deity. Um, But on the other hand, if you look at an animal that has all the attributes of a horse, it looks like a horse, runs like a horse, smells like a horse, neighs like a horse, eats like a horse, then you've got a horse. If you have an animal that loses a lot of the attributes of a horse, Mm -hmm. who knows? You might have a cow or a pig or an orangutan, for all I know. Uh, But you, you don't certainly have a horse. So one of the things that Chalcedon was, in fact, trying to preserve was, in fact, that that the attributes of God are preserved and the attributes of human beings that he takes on are genuinely there, even though there is only one person, both nations are both notions are preserved. So the expression actually in Greek that he emptied himself is not meant to be taken to tell us what he emptied himself of. Mm-hmm. There's no part of that expression that runs along that line. He emptied himself as an idiomatic way of saying he became a nobody. He humbled himself completely, not only to become a human being, but then all the way down to the ignominy and shame and torture of the cross. He emptied himself. Mm. That's what it means. It's not, in other words, dealing with the ontology of the incarnation. That is how we're to sort out the natures. It's talking about the astonishing, un. Um, equal, unimaginable, indescribable self-humiliation in, 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 in becoming a, a human being and then going all the way not only to be a slave but a slave who dies on the cross. So you and I are talking here incarnation, a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith, and we're talking all about Jesus. And often we hear the term incarnation applied to our ministry as Christians. So where's that from and how helpful or what are the limitations of of that stretch of the language of incarnation. Yes, in the last several decades, it's become fairly common to speak of incarnational ministry. Mm -hmm. And what people mean by that is ministry in which the Christians really do identify with some particular sector of society. So you move to another sector of town or another culture, you adopt the language and the culture and the lifestyle and so on of the people to whom you're ministering, and that's often called incarnational ministry. To the best of my knowledge, the expression was coined by John Stott, and his textual basis for using that language was John's Gospel again, because in John's Gospel, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. So the argument is, if the Father sent the Son by means of the Incarnation, then there is some derivative sense in which we are sent likewise to be, quote, incarnated with the people to whom we are sent. Mm -hmm. The problem with that uh, use, however, is that there are some things in John's Gospel where clearly we're supposed to imitate Christ, and some things where we cannot and must not imitate Christ. So, John's Gospel 
also tells us that Jesus is sent as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Mm. So you cannot then quote John 20, as the Father has sent me, so send I you, and therefore think that we must go in order to take away the sin of the world in the same way that Jesus takes away the sin of the world. There are, there are some differences. We're clearly to be obedient as the Son is perfectly obedient. And there are other ways. We are sent into the world. Christ was sent into the world. There are parallels to be drawn. But there are places where we should not go uh, uh, to pursue parallels, it seems to me. Um, a former student of mine, Andreas Kustenberger, has written quite a lot on this subject and rightly points out that in the Gospel of John, on which all of this ba- is based, um, the incarnation is portrayed as something so unique, mm-hmm. so unequivocally tied to the glories of Christ, that to use it for our ministry is almost to diminish what Christ has done, to step from the eternal word, Mm. stepping down to become a human being in flesh, the incarnation, to compare that with somehow crossing to the other side of town and buying a poorer house and call that incarnation is, it verges on the faintly blasphemous. I know what people mean Mm -hmm. by incarnational ministry. I appreciate what they're trying to do. I don't think that using that terminology to describe it is very helpful and has the unwitting risk of diminishing the uniqueness of what Christ has done. Mm -hmm. Another term that often uh, is brought into discussion on the incarnation is hypostatic union. It sounds like a fancy term. What does that mean? Well, you can talk about that at great length. Uh, because there is a long and complicated history. But at the end of the day, what people are after in church history on this uh, terminology is to say that the two natures are so combined into one person that you don't have, dare I say it, a kind of schizophrenic Christ, half God, half human being. Um, You have one person. The union is so perfect that at the end of the day, you do have only one person, even if there are two natures. So that's the sphere in which those debates were were, were hashed out in terms that were uh, that used the philosophical language of, of the time. There may be many pastors, Christian leaders, listening to this, and this is such a central, important doctrine, and they may not have thought much about it recently because maybe they're not in circles where it's under assault. Maybe uh, there's a, a grace that it's not a, a major controversy in evangelicalism. Uh, what's your sense on that? Is there there coming a day where we'll need to be sharper on this doctrine? How would you encourage Christian leaders to orient on it and perhaps do some further study on it? Well, there are a lot of books that are written on the subject pretty pretty commonly. There's a slightly older one by Millard Erickson called The Word Became Flesh, for example. Some of the better commentaries deal with the relevant passages very, very well. The more recent systematic theologies talk about these things pretty well. Horton's systematic theology has some good material on it, for example. Um, I've tried to deal with some of the issues that are involved in my recent book, Jesus, the Son of God. Mm-hmm. Um, so so there, there is a lot of good literature on that. To predict, on, to predict whether or not this will become disputed is, is more difficult. What sometimes happens is uh, great confessional points in Christian creeds become part of our tradition that we accept without thinking about them a great deal mm-hmm. until somebody comes along with a really screwball reinterpretation. And that forces everybody to go back to the books again and say, mm-hmm. now, why do we believe this? Why has the heritage of the church been such and such? Did we get this right? 
So, for example, somebody comes along with uh, a new perspective on Paul, for example, that uh, seems to jettison what has been said in the past about justification, and people have got to go back to the drawing board and rethink. Have those who are using such terminology got it right, or are they making a mild correction, or are they saying something really ridiculous? And so sometimes it's precisely voices that are saying something outside the tradition that force us to go back and say, have we got this right? Let's go back to Scripture. Now, I can't predict what errors are likely to come down that pike in the future or what new voices. Mm -hmm. At the moment, the incarnation is not a highly disputed um, category amongst the broadly orthodox. But who knows? It could be something, again, that will drive us to to uh, diligent study and 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 care with with how these things were discussed in the third and fourth century of the centuries of the Christian Church and what the New Testament passages actually say that mm-hmm. were cited to justify those uh, doctrinal formulations uh, that could easily happen. It has happened in the past. Um, there have been various histories in the in 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 in, in the Church. When you, for, for for example, um, Unitarianism uh, uh, was very strong in in. Europe and in the United States in the 18th and 19th centuries and and had massive implications for how you understand Jesus, effectively denying the incarnation mm. in any traditional sense. Mm. Uh, at the moment, Unitarianism is, is not a strong voice in this country, but it could come again. One final question here. You and I are recording this in December, so it's the Christmas season and maybe a, a heightened awareness of the doctrine of the incarnation as some of the beautiful Christmas carols are sung here in our worship services this time of year. Um, Matthew chapter 1 talks about Jesus being his name, given from the angel to Joseph. You shall call him Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. What's the significance of the name Jesus? When, when God takes on flesh, why have his name be Jesus? The name Jesus is simply a transliteration of the Greek form of Joshua. And Joshua means something like Yahweh saves, God saves. Now, clearly, a person can be called Joshua or Jesus without being God. Clearly. After all, Joshua in the Old Testament is called Joshua. So the boy has a lovely name reminding everybody that Yahweh is the one who saves. But what makes it different with respect to Jesus? When Jesus is given the name Joshua, when Mm -hmm. Jesus is given the name Yahweh saves, there is an explanation that is given. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Mm -hmm. Now, when Joshua is given the name Joshua, or in Greek, Jesus, um, his parents are not told, and he will save his people from their sins. He saves them from wandering in the wilderness by God's own power, bringing them into the promised land, but he does not save them from their sins. Mm -hmm. But when Jesus is given the name Yahweh saves, we are told that he will save his people from their sins. And because that's placarded at the very beginning of Matthew's Mm -hmm. gospel, there's a sense in which all the rest of the gospel needs to be read under that banner. So if you look, for example, at the miracle chapters of chapters, uh, Matthew chapters 8 and 9, where, where Jesus reverses sickness and death and, 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 and so on. Um, he's doing this because he's overthrowing sin and its effects. He came to save his people from their sins. And when you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, great teaching 
chapters on on what on what life in the kingdom ought ultimately to be with no hatred or lust or with, with purity and 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 truthfulness and integrity well yes of course that's the way it must ultimately be because Jesus came to save his people from their sins and so you can track it out all the way to the cross he came to save his people from their sins and so in the words of institution he he enacted a new covenant in his blood for he came to save his people from their sins but that means therefore that if the name means Yahweh saves and what he himself does is save his people from their sins then in some sense this is Yahweh himself who is actually saving his people from their sins um, there are similar uh, pressures around the, the the further title Emmanuel in that mm-hmm. in that um, in that chapter as well. I mean, Emmanuel could be simply a name God with us that is celebrating God's presence with us, but the way it's applied to Jesus uh, within the framework of of a narrative that talks about his birth in this way, this means that this Emmanuel, God with us, is precisely the God of the incarnation. And so, even at Christmas. We sing about Good Friday. Nail, spear will pierce him through. The cross be born for me. Yes, that's exactly right. Thank you, Dr. Carson. Would you pray for our listener as we close? Merciful Father, not only at Christmas, but all through the year, remind us again and again of the sublime truth that the Word who was with God, the Word who was God, became flesh. And through the witnesses of the first century, we too can say, we have seen his glory. We thank you that this word made flesh is not only the conquering king, but the suffering servant. He is not only God with us, but he is Jesus. Yahweh saves. He is not only the impending judge, but he is the Lamb of God who both by his justice and by his sacrifice takes away the sin of the world. Forbid that we should ever become used to such truths, but deepen our understanding of them and therefore also our awe and humility and worship. For Jesus' sake, amen.